Hey y'all, welcome to Seducated, the podcast using business, lifestyle, and marketing. Giving you real perspective and inspiration to help feed your entrepreneurial soul. Our podcast is dedicated to helping you succeed in your business through empowerment and growth. And I'm your Seducated host, Sheila Ellis Glasper and the owner of SEG Media Collective. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Seducated. I had the distinct honor to interview Mr. Kevin D. Richardson. He is one-fifth of the Central Park Five, now Exonerated Five. And for those of you who might know his story, and for some of you who may not, he actually had his story portrayed on Netflix in the miniseries called When They See Us just last year. This film has won awards and it's definitely caused a lot of conversations all over the world. So having the honor to be able to interview him, spend a little bit of time with him, I got to see some cute photos of his kiddos and they are adorable. And just being able to be around a person who has strength written all over them, he just is an amazing person to just be able to tell his story after all of the pain and trauma just to be able to inspire the youth, inspire someone else to help with reform when it comes to our justice system in the United States. And so we're going to do things a little bit differently for this episode, and we are going to play back that interview. And we hope that you're inspired and empowered by the message of strength and perseverance that Mr. Richardson has to share with us. And without further ado... Good evening, everyone. What a blessing to be here before you all and be able to introduce our man of the hour this evening. Mr. Kevin D. Richardson, member of the Central Park Five and now Exonerated Five. April 19, 1989, started off as a normal day for the 14-year-old Kevin D. Richardson. But that night would change the course of his life in American society forever. After the brutal attack and sexual assault of jogger Trisha Ellen Mullaney in Central Park, the New York Police Department rounded up and arrested a total of 10 suspects, including Richardson. Despite there being no DNA and little evidence connecting himself and the other four teens to the crime, Richardson was charged and sentenced to serve five to ten years in jail. After serving five and a half years for a crime that he did not commit, Richardson was put on probation and released from prison. However, years after the conviction, the attack remained on his record. In 2002, New York District Attorney Robert Richardson joined forces with the other men falsely convicted and filed a lawsuit for $41 million, which was finally settled in 2014. In 2019, Netflix released When They See Us, 
a mini-series portraying the famous events of that case. The celebrated and award-winning show has brought injustices Richardson and the Central Park Five experienced back into the public's attention. 30 years later, Kevin Richardson is an advocate for the criminal justice system and uses his personal experience with false coercions and unjust convictions to bring about change. He has partnered with the Innocence Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to exonerating wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing. Ladies and gentlemen, Kansas State University, I introduce to you Mr. Kevin Richardson. Well, now that we have Mr. Richardson here in front of us today, I want to first thank you, Mr. Richardson, for having the bravery and the courage and the heart to tell your story and to be an advocate for those who have fallen victim to our broken justice system. Many of us in this room have watched the Netflix series When They See Us, but could you please just give a brief overview of the story of the Central Park Five, now exonerated five, for the audience? Hello. Hey. Uh, case stage, hello. First time we can. <laughs> a long way from New York to Kansas. I'm here as a blessing. <clears throat> for those who don't know, my name is Kevin D. Richardson. Um, one fifth of the member of Central Park Five, also known as the Exonerated Five. My story started out April 19, 1989, 31 years ago. It started out as one day as me being a young 14-year-old on the Easter vacation, just curious. I went out to play basketball, as you see when they see us. And I didn't return home until seven years later. At that age, I was just curious, just being 14. But that doesn't describe what happened to me because I went into the park just to see what was going on. I lived across the street from Central Park. So when I went into Central Park, I seen a few incidents that started to happen. Now, I wasn't scared of what happened in the park. I was scared because I had a curfew. And my mother's from the South, okay? From Virginia, yeah. So I was scared of getting home, actually. Now, I didn't know what was about to endure. So once I seen that some people were getting harassed, it was time for me to go. But I didn't quite make it home. When I think about it to this day, here I am, 45 years old, it still hurts me. I still curl up like that little 14-year-old Kevin Richardson that my good friend Asante Black played. I really went from a nightmare, from a dream to a nightmare because I was in a position I'd never been through before, being harassed by cops that was twice my size, every season, 
before I used to try to uh, block that memory out. But because of when they see us, it, it gave me life back to speak about it. Speak about what happened to me, speak about what happened to my brothers. So going through that process from being interrogated for over 24 to 36 hours without parental supervision. And we'll get more into that, but one thing you'll see and what they see is they describe what happened in those days. Because when you get interrogated, you'll see the ending process. You see the ending product. You don't see what happened between that. The harassment, the coercion, the physical abuse that I went through. Now I often say that me and my brothers, we were walking miracles what we went through. You know, sometimes I sit back and I pinch myself and say, did I really go through that? That was me, you know. Being in that precinct, for those three days, I thought I would never come out of it, quite honestly. But I'm here today to speak about it. So it's still horrific, but as I often said in an Oprah Winfrey interview, I said, it's painful, but it's necessary. Like we, we need to speak about this. We need to start the conversation about it. Thank you. The Netflix miniseries, When They See Us, covers a quarter of a century, from the five innocent brown and black boys, including Yusef Salam, 15, yourself, Kevin Richardson, 14, Antron McRae, 15, Corey Wise, 16, and Raymond Santana, 14. They were first interrogated by police detectives for, like you said, over 30 hours about the assault and rape of a white woman in New York City's Central Park in the spring of 1989. They were just seventh, eighth, ninth graders. They were interrogated with no food, no drink, parents and legal representation were not there. The four episodes show their seven to 15 years spent in prison to their exoneration in 2002, to the $41 million settlement with the city of New York in 2014. This miniseries has been nominated for 16 Emmy Awards and won two Emmys just last year. So how does it feel to have millions of people all over the world that can now see your truth portrayed in this series? It's surreal. At the end of the day, all we wanted was our story to be told. We wanted our truth to be told. And we knew that when it come out, it would be big because it's our truth. But I would be lying to you if I knew that it would be this successful. But you know what? People relate to the truth. And when it hit 194 countries, I knew it was big, it went global. I was on set often, the making of it, and to be there, to see it come into transition from filming it to the ending product, it was amazing, but it was also a roller coaster of emotions because I put myself back into that humble state of 14. And it was hard, quite honestly, to see what happened, to see, to relive that again. It was harsh, but it's something we had to go through in life because I held those emotions back for quite some time. And I always use this example. Imagine you have 
a bottle of soda, and you keep it stored in your room for 25 years, then you begin to shake it. That was my emotions coming all out, and that's what's happening now, that people are relating to us, people are really physically seeing us and hearing us. People are now hearing our truths, because now that we can inspire a whole globe, there's something big, and I think it's bigger than just the Central Park Five. It's not about Kevin Richardson. I never claimed that. I think it's more about our generation. It's a culture thing. Because now we have that, that platform to carry on the legacy for others. So now it's bigger than us. So being on set and seeing the process of it is huge, and it's still huge now. Like my life has changed drastically. Other than being Kevin Richardson from the Exonerated Five, I'm just a stay-at-home dad with two girls. I'm just a family guy, really. But I'll take on that. I'll take on the responsibility. Because I think it's for the greater good. As a former journalist, I know that the job of the media is to inform the public in a fair and unbiased manner. However, when the story first broke headlines, there was nothing fair about the media coverage. There was an absolute media frenzy that contributed to the cultural uproar that helped send you and four other innocent boys to prison. The coverage was vicious as they convicted you and the other boys with their headlines, commentary, and TV segments. Your names and your families were drugged through the mud. You guys were labeled a wolf pack, monsters, and worse. Donald Trump took an $85,000 ad out with New York City newspapers calling out for the restoration of the death penalty. The headlines dehumanized you. How do you think the media coverage affected you and the others then and now? The media attempt to dehumanize us. They did during that time because not only did it affect the five of us, it affected our families. Our families received death threats from this. Remember this one article in New York from a reporter called Pat Buchanan, Google it. He said that the eldest, Kobe Wise, should be hung from a tree in Central Park while the other four should be horsewhipped. And that was not even knowing who we were. They were judging us before they even knew our character. Me, I was raised in a household of five women. I've been, nothing, I've been raised nothing but women. I have four sisters. I'm the youngest as well. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Being a boy. But I was raised differently, you know. But the beast, to have your name scrutinized, at 14 years old, first that was illegal, actually, to have our face plastered on the news and written articles. They were judging us already. And I don't blame the public because back then we really didn't use logic because it was a media frenzy. And that's the way that they brainwash you. It's something that's called technology. And that's what they did. They tricked the public to believe we were the animals. I remember going to high school, walking down the 
down the hallway and people say, how you doing, Kevin? When I turn my back, they'll say, it's a rapist right there. And that hurt it as a 16-year-old now, 16 now, going to high school. It forced me to drop out of high school at the time because it was too much pressure on me. And just being uh, labeled as a sex offender. I don't know if you know, in prison, there's only one other, one other thing that trumps, trumps sex offender is being a child molester. That's something very harsh to deal with in general. Being a 14-year-old is even harsher, you know? So, to quite honestly, I don't know how we even survived that. But I know with my, with my faith, my faith in God has, has put me through this. My mother always told me that, you know, the truth will come out. At 14, I don't know if I quite got that, you know? I really didn't understand until now, actually, until the last couple of years that it was for a different purpose. And sometimes when people, we go through things in life, we sacrifice our own lives for you. And that's what happened to us. We sacrifice our own lives to see our community come out better. When they see us was so painful. I know it was for me. Emotions ran high, and it was heart-wrenching just to see it all played out. The lasting effects that this had on your lives and your youth was just ripped away from you. You've mentioned in interviews how you didn't get to go to prom and high school graduation and those things that you would have in your teenage years if this didn't happen. It brought out a common theme of fear. It showcased how black and brown boys are seen in America and treated as adults and threats to society. It illustrates how our justice system is broken. It shows how those who are supposed to protect us fail in their roles sometimes. Due to fear, systematic racism, and white privilege, your case was high profile, but it is certainly not an isolated incident. You shared in a recent interview that 2,471 people have been wrongfully convicted and proven innocent later. 28% of those people who were innocent gave a false confession. Mr. Richardson, can you share with us and kind of help us understand how and why people who are innocent could be forced into a false confession? And this, this is a question that people often ask, how can they confess to the crime? You know, at first, we didn't confess to it. We were coerced to it. It's a, it's a difference. You really don't know until you're trapped into those four walls. And many people say, oh man, I would never say that. I would never say I did anything. But when you're put in a situation where, first, speaking for myself, I was 14. I didn't scratch the surface of life yet. And I can remember just wanting to get the nightmare over with. Just wanted to go home. And after days and hours of being interrogated, nonstop, first violating our rights, not using the bathroom, 
not getting a drink of water, not getting food, not changing my clothes. It forced you to do things. And on top of that, then comes the physical abuse. As you see when they see us, everything you see was accurate. From the scene when I got hit with a police helmet in my face, I can still feel that. There's some things that don't escape you. Even as a, as a young man right now, these, th these things still haunt me, but we have to move on from it. We have to learn from it and grow. So, if you're really in that situation, the first thing you must learn, which I did, and being naive and 14, sometimes you don't know. You have to know your rights. Now, people say know your rights, but you really have to know. The first thing you have to know is remain silent until you get an attorney. And it's a trick with the second one. Anything you say will be held against you in the court of law. So it's a tricky, slippery slope right there. So until you're in that situation and really going into interrogation, it's a different. It's, it's different. Um, and like I said, my brother Yusuf Salam, he said, I thought we would never escape coming out of that precinct. Because our families wasn't there. Like you've seen at the end, you've seen my parents show up, you see my sister Angela show up. And that was after the damage was done. As the mother of two young black boys myself, I am often afraid of what could happen to them just because of the color of their skin and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. As a parent yourself now, what advice do you have for parents and uh, any future parents here in the audience on how to have the talk about police with their children and how to advocate for them if they ever found themselves in a similar situation? The Lord has blessed me just with women around my life. Um, I have an 11-year-old. Just to get it to that, that age. Then I have a two-year-old. Uh, my 11-year-old, I'm still scared for her. And I think sometimes I've been overprotective as a dad. You know, she's been sheltered. And because of that, some things she don't know. Sometimes you have to be a little street smart as well as educated, you know, and my 11 year old, she lacks the street smart part. It's okay. But to have that talk with her, it's hard. And it's hard for her to see what I went through. She hasn't seen all of them when they see us yet. She's seen the first three. Part four of Corby is really, really, really dark. And that's not even, that's just some of it. And we all went through other things in it that you still haven't seen. But having that talk with her, and how we have that talk with our teenagers or our children, we have to be like, open and honest with them and up front because now it's a change of kids. Kids are more smarter, social media, Kids know more than you think already. So I think you just have to be open and honest and let them know 
I'm not trying to be your friend, I'm your parent, but you can also talk to me. And I always tell my 11 year old that to be honest with me and talk to me about anything that she's thinking of or something that might go wrong. My two year old, by the time she gets to 12, she's gonna be like that already. Because they're already so smart. But having that talk is something hard that we have to do. And people that don't have children yet, take your time. <laughs> take your time. Good advice. <laughs> The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with the Innocence Project and how you've been able to turn your pain into purpose? Innocence Project, also family. Um, I started working with the Innocence Project roughly been about seven years now. And because of my own personal experience, uh, I started working with them. But the work that we do is solely to free people that don't have a voice. And now I became the voice of the voiceless. Help individuals get past their traumas. Fortunately, or unfortunately, I was able my brothers was able to get our story out to the world. But there's so many people that's incarcerated, that's innocent. They just don't get their fair chair to speak up, you know. So working with them is very passionate, and it's a nonprofit. So I, we don't get paid from it. It's just something we do out, out of passion because there are many people all over the world that's committing suicide, that's being electrocuted. I don't know if you heard of somebody called Rodney Reed. He was on death row in Texas. And we fought and fought to get it extended so he could live some more days, and we're still fighting. So this is an ongoing fight that we're doing, and we're not doing it to be recognized. We're doing it because of the passion that we truly share. And all the brothers, we do that as well. So the Innocent Project is growing, and we want to keep on growing. And one other thing I want to add, from the Innocent Project, it gave me the strength and opportunity to be starting to work on, I'm not ready yet, to start our own foundation. I'm letting the cat out the bag a little bit, but <laughs> it's gonna be called the EFF, the Exonerated Fire Foundation. And that's like the same work to get back to the community. So because of the Innocent Project, it's given me that drive to do something more. That's amazing. I wanted to, Get to our next question here. So as you were saying before, there is no doubt that this has caused you a lot of trauma, pain, and agony uh, for yourself and all that were involved, including your families. And in the mini-series, we see how the families were affected. Of course, we just see a little taste of it, but we do see that in the mini-series. It robbed you of your youth and your dreams you had dreams of being a trumpet player? Yes. Yeah, so you'll see that in, in the series as well. And even though you were exonerated and you received a settlement, you have trauma and uh, lifelong effects. Invisible scars, as one of you mentioned in an, in an interview, invisible scars. From the aftermath of all of this, how have you been able to cope 
and just begin the healing process. So every day we struggle. We, um, we all suffer from something called PTSD. You don't know what that is, post-traumatic syndrome disease. It's something that's very true. It's very accurate. Um, to even get personal, I have days where I'm divine, then a few minutes later I'm just crying. And my wife, she feels helpless because she don't know what to do. She's there for me in my corner 100%, but it's something she can't help me with. Like I have to dig out that hole myself. But by me, by me traveling across the world, sharing my story, it helps me get through it. And number one is my faith. It's God's work. Everything that I'm doing is God's work. He just set the path and I'm walking through it. You know, and trust me, I respect everyone's religion. But speaking for myself, it was me, it was God. It was Jesus Christ that took care of me, that watched over me. And like, you know, I have love for every religion. When I was in, when I was in prison, I studied the law library, I studied every religion there is to have a better understanding of it, you know. But for me personally, it was God watching over me. And like I said, sometimes I think because I'm working, because I'm in the process of doing everything, because I'm sharing my story, I don't really have time to reflect everything that I accomplished because I think it's so much work to do. And I think maybe my kids will celebrate that. You know, in my man cave, I have a yeah, man cave, and I have my little sports things, and I have my awards there. And this is there just for my kids, really. Because what I do, everything that happens to me, I appreciate it, but it's more than just that, you know. So going through this struggle is an everyday process, and I'm, just, I'm human just like everyone else. Well, we definitely thank you for just being able to tell your truth, share your truth and your story with all of us. Because I think uh, just speaking for myself, just being here and hearing you speak on it, it's helping all of us. We're here on a college campus, uh, Kansas State University, and we're full of youth, full of dreamers, ready to go out in the world and make a positive impact. What is your advice for these college students and how they can change the narrative in America when it comes to racial relations, when it comes to social justice, and make a real lasting positive change in our society? This is the best time now to do so. Now we're in a day and age where we have many outlets, we have social media, we have you young people now, you have that drive and that passion to stand up for what you believe in. And that's the same passion that was like in the 60s when everybody was radical, was fighting for justice. I think the youth now, or the young adults, they have that power that you don't have to, you don't have to say no to anything. Now, back then, like when my mom grew up, she grew up in the Jim Crow era, and it was different. It was colored, it was white. And now that everyone, I think we're under the same umbrella for fighting for justice. So now you need an extra drive. So if you wonder what to do, 
do more. Push yourself even harder. Because trust me, myself and my brothers can push ourselves harder. From what we endure, I think everybody can do that as well. So you, you might have times when you are working on your classes or working on your homework or your studies, you might want to give up. Don't do it. Because you have other people that's looking up to you. You might have little siblings that's looking up to you. Or you might have a fellow classmate that looks up to you. So we have to just keep going harder because that's what our forefathers were wanting. And to be able to speak, especially in Black History Month. I've been blessed to be on the same stage where Martin Luther King was. Different places that are speaking about that. To be in that same breath is unbelievable. I know he would be very proud of me, as well as Malcolm X. The list goes on, so keep working, keep fighting, keep striving. Because now we have the upper hands. We have the right to do what we want to do now. And it's in your hands, but the ball is in your court. So we have to keep pushing. It's been over 30 years since the Central Park jogger case was first broke into the headlines. Um, Many of those in the room were not even born yet when the story first came out. The Netflix series has allowed your story to be retold to the youth who need to know what happened. And still to this day, we see stories of our people of color being wrongfully accused, imprisoned, or worse, even killed, all because of the color of their skin. Your story trended on Twitter and sparked so many conversations. It brought generations together. LeVar Burton, which some of you in the room may not be old enough to know about Roots, but um, he played Kunta Kinte in the famous Roots TV series. And uh, he tweeted, when they see us is essential viewing to every American. It made many people face an American story that was not pretty at all. It hurt but it needed to be told. Do you feel that we have made progress since then, 30 years ago? What do you feel it will take to make meaningful and lasting progress in our country's social justice system? When I was on Twitter about roots, and how that our story is the equal of that in modern day, that blew my mind to be even mentioned in that. I don't know if y'all really understand what Roots did for us. So I think our story is doing that for the next generation is, is mind-boggling, actually. But I think that it's little progress we have. But we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And that's why everything I do, I still have to do more myself. I still have to work harder. My brothers still have to work harder because one thing for sure, we do not want to see another Exonerator 5, another Central Park 5. We don't want to see another Scott's Brothers Boys. We don't want to see another Emmett Till. We don't want to see another Vincent Hurst case. These are all cases that happen that shouldn't happen. So we want to erase that. We want to change the dynamic of how people of color being treated in society. You know, so hopefully 
when my two-year-old grows up, and she's going to be radical, that there will be a change. But I think now, we're nowhere near. Well, we're getting ready to end our part of the conversation and go into some more questions and uh, answers here. But I want to make sure that I thank everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, it's just beautiful to see everyone here and the diversity here in this room. I hope that you were enlightened and empowered and inspired by Mr. Richardson's story. And I wanted to mention, you mentioned Martin Luther King being here. Well, actually, I don't know if you know that he gave his last university speech here at Kansas State University. Really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of history here with, with that. And there is a quote that is so fitting that comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sure many of you have heard, but I just felt like it was so fitting for your story and tonight that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And uh, that's part of why your story is just so important. And uh, I wanted to get a little bit of crowd participation as we close out and get ready to take some more questions from the audience. I would like to honor the Exonerated Five by saying their names aloud. And if you all would just repeat after me as I give the names, Youssef Salam. Yusef Salam. Kevin Richardson. Kevin Richardson. Antron McCray. Antron McCray. Corey Wise. Corey Wise. And Raymond Santana. Raymond Santana. We will not forget your story, and we see you. And so you guys, thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get updates on when we have new episodes. And until next time.